Welcome back in listeners to another wonderful episode of Whisper in the Wings from Stage Whisper. We've got a great episode in store for you today, and we are joined by two wonderful artists. Joining us today, we have the playwright and director, Emily Mann, and the actor, Daniel Donskoy. They're part of the show being presented by the George Street Playhouse, The Pianist. It's playing now through October 22nd at the George Street Playhouse, and you can get your tickets and more information by visiting georgestreetplayhouse.org. This is a very fascinating show. We're very excited to be bringing it to you and to learn more about it. So let's welcome on our guests, Emily, Daniel, welcome to Whisper in the Wings from Stage Whisper. Thanks, Andrew. It's great to be here. Thank you very much. Really, really nice to meet you. Yes, thank you both. I'm I'm so delighted to have you here. I'm so delighted to be talking about this great show, The Pianist, and I'm so excited to learn more about it. So, Emily, if I could start with you, you are the playwright of this show. Yes. Could you tell us a little bit more about what the show is about? Yes, well, I don't know. Uh, some people may remember The Pianist, which is a, a, a brilliant movie. Roman Polanski directed it, Adrian Brody played the pianist, and it was a sensation. I will never forget it as long as I live. It was based on a memoir that the pianist himself, his name is Varishwar Spielmann, wrote after the war. And I was approached by Broadway producers, Michael Woke and Robin DeLavita, Kamiko Yoshi, and they asked me if I would write the stage adaptation. And I thought, well, I don't know. I, what would I have to uh, to add to an already brilliant story? And they said, read the memoir. And I did. And I was blown away. Absolutely blown away. And thought, oh, what can the theater do that a movie can't? And that is ignite the imagination and the empathy in a way that you just can't get from a flat screen. It's that simple. And so I began to read and think. I went to Warsaw. My mother's family came from Warsaw and also from a town outside of Warsaw, and they were all murdered during the Holocaust. So I have a very personal connection to this. So I went, I met with the Spielmanns, and I came back and I started to write. I was very inspired by being there. And what came out as I started to do this uh, over six years ago, I thought, oh, does anyone want to hear this anymore? Or again, the story of the Holocaust. And I looked up, my husband yelled, look at the television. There was Charlottesville with the swastikas flying and the Nazis marching. And I thought, oh, oh, maybe so. And I'm afraid every single month and year since I started working on this, this story has become more and more urgent with the rise of fascism around the world, the rise of anti-Semitism, the rise of homophobia and, and racism. The politics of hate are on full display again. And so this is also both a cautionary tale and a, a tale of saying this cannot happen again. And this could be me and this could be us. So that's how this all came about in a nutshell. <laughs> I really appreciate that. I, I truly do because we've mentioned before on the show numerous times the power of art, the ability that we have to say things behind, if you will, a mask. That that theater has the ability to say things 
to the community at large that most people don't without starting confrontation. And I think that the fact that you have written this show with the intention of making people aware of this can't happen again, you know, look around. This is not something that's so distant, you know, is amazing. And I so appreciate that you're using this story in this art form for, for a good message, for a good purpose, you know. Daniel, I want to ask you now, as the actor playing the pianist, um, how did you come upon this piece? Well, I received a dubious email from my agent if I would be willing to tape today for for the pianist. And I was like, what do you mean the pianist? It's already done. <laughs> the film. And they were like, no, 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 no. There's going to be a stage adaptation in, in the States. And I hadn't done theatre in eight years at that point. I was only filming. And I kept going to my agent. I was like, I want to do theatre. Please find something. Please find something. She's like, I found it. It's this. <laughs> you need to do this. So I read the script in the morning and I'm, my, I'm like covered in goosebumps because obviously the, I saw the film when I was 12 years old, very early on in my <laughs> young teens. And I was harrowed by it, of course, because it's a very, you know, a story of death and annihilation is something very weird for a 12 year old to think about. But then you think about the people who were 12 during that time. And they didn't have time to think that it's harrowing. It was their reality. On top of that, I grew up in Germany. So the first things I learned about being Jewish is the history of Jews in Germany, which again resulted in death 80 years ago. Uh, so I read Emily's script and I'm like, wow, this is this is very strong. This is very direct. It's daring and very good. So I sit down, I'm like, how am I going to learn? And there's this big monologue that I had to tape for, which was actually Vladislav Spielmann explaining to the audience in direct address what it's like to live what he describes in the quarter of the damned which is the ghetto and I taped it I was like oh my god what have I done I don't know how do you tape for theater and then I didn't hear back for a couple of weeks and then I get an email saying that the director would like to zoom and I was like and then this lovely woman uh, turns up on my screen on zoom and I was like okay this is going to be fantastic and then we had a very long chat I think it was supposed to be 10 minutes I think we spoke for over an hour about life and love and hope and music and by the end Emily said well actually I'd I'd like you to do it and I was like what do you mean she's like no no no, I'd like you to do it and I was like (laughs) I knew I just knew It's like Daniel dropped from heaven. I mean, I didn't, I had seen him, I think, what, in The Crown or something. And I, and I, and I, I remember it was a very memorable performance. But when someone said, well, you know, there's this actor, he played Hewitt in The Crown and went, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm. He's Jewish. He's a he's a musician. And we have, he decided that he would tape for us. I went, what? I don't know why they were holding it back. And there I was in their office and they showed me the monologue and I cried. I just thought, how could, see, no American actor could understand what Daniel Nelson brings to this. He understood on such a deep level what this story was. I could tell from a three minute monologue, every word was grounded in an extraordinary understanding of the truth. And then when we met, it was actually funny because I, 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 I said that he was, you know, he was a musician. And then I knew I, I looked at his 
TikTok and there he was just sort of looking very sort of rock starish and everything else. I thought, yeah, but this is Chopin. This is one of the most difficult pieces in most pianists' repertoire. It's the Nocturne in C sharp minor with runs and trills and everything else. And then he said to me, well, my grandmother thinks I'm a very good pianist. And I thought, mm-hmm, so sweet. <laughs> I love his grandmother and his grandmother thinks he's gifted. Right. And, you know, when an American actor would say that, you go, yeah, honey, so you can play chopsticks, basically. And she thinks you're great. Well, in fact, Daniel could have had a career as a concert pianist. He is, you know, among his other amazing gifts, he also is an extraordinary musician. And he brings that to this production as well. So, I mean, it's, if you are just going to come to discover, as as one of the producers said, and I don't want to give you a swell tad as you're sitting here, I'm very careful not to do that with him. But it always embarrass me when you talk about me. I'm always like, mm. I know. One of the investors came up to me at this reception and he said, Well, you know, we'll be lucky if he remembers us in two years. And I thought that was a very, I, it, it was a knife to the heart, but at the same time, I know exactly what he's talking about. Once people know who Daniel is in this country, it's going to be a very big deal. He's amazing. I'm I'm, I'm very I'm very, I'm so happy to have taken this. It was honestly like I, I arrived here, like I arrived at JFK. So actually, the funniest thing is that the next morning after Emily offered me the job, my apartment in Berlin, I was living in Berlin and London, my apartment in Berlin went up in fire, in flames. The next morning. So I wake up after this incredible thing, wake up the next morning, like, oh my God. And I was like, okay, I don't believe in signs. I don't really believe in God, but it was like, get the F out of Germany, go to America, do this. And since I've arrived, it's been, it's been, I mean, working on this is profoundly challenging Mm -hmm. for everyone in the room, from Emily to our incredible team of designers to every single cast member, because obviously in four weeks of rehearsal, you have to develop a story of, well, death and agony, also hope, but we had to create a family that gets annihilated. And that is something very, I think we all struggled so hard with the long days and to really, you know, keep your focus because there is so much sadness in this and so much, well, portraying death and portraying losing the people you love the most is something very difficult. So I think we've all lived in this, universe of warsaw 39 to 45 which is so unimaginable when you walk around new york city and and you walk around new brunswick and new jersey and everything it was summer and it was nice and lovely and there's music festivals and one day we were we were rehearsing a scene and outside there was a mexican street fair and i'm talking about the incarceration of my family and taking the train to treblinka and outside there's a mariachi band playing and you go what is this? Oh. Is this alternate reality? Is this the matrix splitting? But we've battled for it every day. And I'm I'm, I'm so yeah. proud that we've been performing it now for, to audiences who are deeply moved. And that deeply is uh, yes. a, a big absolutely. Big and the other thing about this incredible ensemble is five of them have been working on it with me off and on for six years. And then Daniel came in and then and Austin Pendleton was playing the father. And suddenly we were we felt so complete. That's what they all said. I mean, that now we have our Vodic, now we have our papa. And it really uh, feels like a family. We started like we started behaving like a family. It's very scary. <laughs> Absolutely. But also we found a great deal of joy. 
in yeah. the family because the love is so huge, you know? So there's that kind of humanity and that kind of hope. And then how Vorshov kept alive was through his music and in his mind. He could keep all of that alive and it, it kept him alive. So, I mean, there's something about working on... A, piece of work that is a celebration of the power and transformational power of art and music, which is also life-giving. So, yeah. you know, we fed off of that. And there's this amazing, if I do say so myself, Iris Hand has written this gorgeous original score. The whole play is scored. I mean, it's either with Iris's music, which is heartbreaking and beautiful and delicate, or the classical repertoire, the family and and the pianist himself. And there's a sound score that basically never stops. So Yeah, and a uh, great crazy world of sound because we don't see never the, see. We don't see murder. Everything's told to us by projections, light, and Mark Bennett has created a crazy mesmerizing soundscope that for yeah. us that is also really serves us as you know we react not only can we take cues from our from our castmates we can take cues from actually audiovisual things yeah. happening around us which is something very it's it's very very unique i have to say also in the rehearsal process from day one we started rehearsing with a sound scope to which you react so everything's around you so you kind of like really you know in drama school they teach you to be a 360 degree actor in london and sometimes you have to take it from nothing. And here we had a whole sound world around us, which really helps you become multidimensional. Yeah. It's another character in the play. You can't really play it without it. It's in reaction to, a lot of the script is in reaction to the sound, the music. And then this woman, Katie Tucker, rocks. I mean, she is our, our projection designer. And I just met her. I'd seen her work in New York and I thought, oh, wow, who is this? And I went on her website and she blew me away. She's mainly been doing opera and she works in textures and abstract images and it's very emotional work and not at all documentary. You know, you're not seeing the the big eyes of the children in the ghetto and all that, all the usual imagery that you you know already. She makes you think again and imagine yourself there. It's, she's just extraordinary. So... We had a great time with our design crew, I'll tell you. Awesome. I love that. That's so wonderful. And the journey this show has gone on and the way that it's brought everyone together. And every, I mean, that just, that is fantastic. That is really fantastic. So let me ask, what is the message or thought that you hope audiences will take away from this show? And Emily, if I can start with you first on this, especially because you are the director as well as the playwright of the show. That's mm. what I want people to take away. Well, I think I said it. I mean, you look up there and you fall in love with these people or you see yourself in these people. You put your yourself in their shoes and you listen to Daniel who gives you his heart and soul every night, telling you on a personal level what it is like to go through this how fast it happens and what the real risks of fascism and hatred are. The destruction of democracy is right around the corner and I do believe this play is a, is a cautionary tale, but also play to talk about, think about. Weep, a lot of people are sobbing because 
lot of people have had people who they've lost, right? But other people leave energized with never again. Yes, a thousand times yes. It's a beautiful message. Daniel, how about you? What is the message or thought you hope people take away from the pianist? Uh, it would be very difficult for me to distill it down to one. It, it's more, uh, I think it it should be for every person who arrives, it should be exactly what they can take out of it. Because for certain people, we had a couple of talkbacks. It was very interesting. Because mm. some people said this, you know, in a couple of years, the majority of survivors will not be with us anymore. So A, I hope it inspires the children of survivors or people who have had experiences of trauma and any racial annihilation to talk about the experiences of their parents, of their grandparents, to keep talking and sharing the story. So A, I hope this serves as an inspiration to dig deeper in one's own history, no matter what that history is. Because Mm -hmm. we as a society or as humans, because we have such great coping mechanisms, one of the first coping mechanisms is to forget Now, as much as that serves us on a personal level, it doesn't serve us on a societal level, because as a society, if you just look back at the last 2000 years of history, every 100, 200 years, there's death and annihilation that the the generation after remembers, and 50, 60, 70, now we're 80 years later, starts forgetting. So I hope, A, it really serves, just like Emily said, as a reminder, but not not just like the on a very personal level, what have I experienced as a human? You don't have to be Jewish. You, 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 yeah. you can be, you can be no, you can be a, a middle-aged man, white from Utah or from Massachusetts. And you go, what, on what personal level have I experienced the lack of empathy? And what does a lack of empathy cause? What, what, what does that make me feel on a very personal level? How have I Uh, been feeling segregated and I think every one of us goes through these things in life so I very much hope that people not only connect to that because they're Jewish or because they had the exact same experience in their family but because they see that a lack of empathy down the line very much down the line can cause fascism and fascism can cause mass annihilation and industrialized genocide and I must say that my African-American friends who have come have been blown away the connection and the understanding and the empathy and the sympathy is visceral and real. And so, yes, it is, it's a play for everyone. It's a play for everyone. And all of us have our own way of entering the play and leaving the play. And however one does it and can do it is real and and vital and, and, and we honor it. I think it's important, an important story to hear. And I also must say we're doing it for the children. We're, we've got a big education department at George Street, and there are three or four school matinees. And I'm very proud that we're able to to bring this to the younger, the younger community as well. That is fabulous. And a great lead into my final question for this first part of the interview, which is who do you hope have access to the show? And Emily, I'm going to stick with you first on this again. Who has access? I would hope everyone has access. <laughs> what I, I love is that the, the the tickets are moderately priced, which is wonderful. And the young people are coming. And I hope that it reaches a very diverse audience. It's meant to. And I think because of the vulnerability and the openness of the direct address that, that Daniel delivers, that 
it will feel accessible to all people. He's opening his heart and his memory. And it's like sitting at your grandmother's table, you know, in the kitchen when they're, you know, the old ladies are telling their tales or the old men are telling their tales. I mean, it should, it's that intimate. And I think because of that, one can hear it in a new way and let it into your heart in a new way. It's not just being, the horrors are not being thrown at you. It's totally human, feeling like one-on-one -on -one experience. I mean, Daniel makes you feel he's talking only to you. A lot of people have said that to me. That's the magic of live theater, right? He's talking. It's also very difficult sometimes because some, it's direct address. And sometimes, of course, because you're telling, you know, not the nicest of stories. And certain people really look at you in a way that they... they, they they cherish a connection and some others can't take it at all. So sometimes when you land on someone and you really realize they're like, oh, please, please look at someone else. And I, I know I don't take it personally because I completely understand, you know, talking about the remembrance of one's family in post annihilation is so hard. So it's, it's, but audiences are very diverse, I feel. And it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's interesting. The most interesting moment is when the play finishes because they don't know what to do. It's like it's over. And then they, the majority of them kind of like very slowly stand up and then they applaud in a very odd way I've never experienced before. Yeah. Uh, because, I mean, obviously you're not like <laughs> beaming with, yeah. with laughter or, or joy, but you can see that the play has touched them. And that is exactly what Yes, I mean, often they stand, it's, it's, well, first of all, you can hear a pin drop during the performance. It's only an hour and 38 minutes long, and you never hear a rustle. You sometimes will hear people go, mm, yeah, mm -hmm. you know, there'll be re small responses like that. But at the end, it's almost as if they're at church or in temple and they, they stand slowly and then they clap. It's usually a standing ovation. And then it builds as as the as the bows happen it's a great release that they can think oh oh i can just let it out you know so that's beautiful to to hear and watch also and that you've experienced this together as a community the each audience is so different but i think there's a gratitude they're not watching alone that there's community again that you can only get in a live performance i love that Daniel, what about you? Who do you hope have access to the show? Well, anyone who wants to be, I mean, it's a bit difficult because obviously ideally you'd say anyone. Then you know that of course a theater going audience is predominantly an audience that already has a pre-given interest in theater and the arts, but I nevertheless hope that given the moderate pricing of this and the location of this theater, that people who maybe haven't been to the theater before would go and experience this because it is having seen the film as Emily said in the beginning it's flat it's on a screen this is something lively and it's it screams at you so I really hope people who maybe haven't been to the theater for a very long time and this maybe draws them back in that I would hope I mean I'd hope oh, that yeah me too
want to switch things up now for the second half of our interview. And I want to let our listeners get a chance to get to know the two of you a little bit better. And I want to start by asking the two of you, what or who inspires you? What playwrights, composers, or shows have inspired you in the past or are just some of your favorites? And Daniel, if I can start with you on this one, that would be lovely. David Bowie, always. Benjamin Clementine, incredible uh, songwriter. For me, I think people who have combined music and acting on all, for, all forms of art, art expression into creation. Obviously, growing up, I grew up with a lot of Russian literature. So lots of Dostoevsky and Pushkin, which is very soul crushing. Mm-hmm. So I definitely was inspired by a lot of Chopin, by Rachmaninov. I don't know. It's uh, it's very difficult to pinpoint a particular artist. I've been inspired by art creation, by watching artists grow and watching their career. I don't know. In my household, we listen to a lot of police and Jamiroquai, although I'm from like uh, a Soviet household. And then on the other side, I was reading Master and Margarita when I was way too young. So I think I'm always amazed by people who create amalgamations of different art forms, different languages and different perceptions and different medias into arts creation. And David Bowie is actually a perfect symbol to me of a human who transcended any boundary. I mean, if we look just 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 the learned sexuality and gender, something we talk about so much nowadays, that was 50 years ago and he was living it. Uh, so that's really inspiring to me. Musically, Prince, Oh my God, so many people. It's very oh. difficult for me, one person who has inspired me. My family has inspired me massively. My family were young parents who grew up in the Soviet Union, who at the age of 19 had a kid and gave up everything to have a better life. I think that was probably my predominant inspiration. Mm-hmm. That is a lovely list. I love that. Emily, how about you? What are who inspires you? Oh, Lord. I mean, like Daniel, I mean, it's it's so eclectic and there's so much. I mean, I would start with my parents, actually. I'm glad you brought them up and I was going to be embarrassed to say, oh, my parents, my mom and dad. But in fact, it's true. My my parents were extraordinary human beings. My father was a American historian and he wrote particularly about immigrants in American life. And so I always cared about the multiplicity of ethnicities um, in this country that made it great. And his best friend was a, an American historian, African-American named John Hope Franklin, who, who started the field of African-American studies. So I had two papas. I had a, a black and a Jewish historian, American historian fathers, and we were like one household. So I was very lucky in that way. And also my father believed in oral history. So if you know about my work, I do a lot of taking oral histories and making them into plays. In fact, the second show in the season, this season at George Street is a play of mine called Having Our Say, which is about two African-American sisters, both over 100 years old, telling us the history of their family, which is was on Broadway uh, 20 years ago, 18 years ago. So I would say my 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 father, my father's and my mother who told me early on what happened to our family in Europe. I was always quite aware. It wasn't until a biography was written about me that I found out that my father had been in Patton's army and in the unit that liberated Buchenwald. He wouldn't talk about it, but that was part of our family history as well. 
but we always knew who we were. We weren't religious, but we were we were secular Jews. We were very Jewish identified, but Jewish intellectuals, which is much like the Spielmann family in in the play. Musically, I mean, I I I played a lot of instruments in my youth: piano, flute, recorder, harpsichord, and then stopped once I discovered the theater. Um, and it sounds so ridiculous for a playwright to say this, but when I was an apprentice at the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis, one of the great, great Shakespeare directors was my mentor. And I learned about directed dress from two artists, Shakespeare and David Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> and so I do sort of a kind of a rock concert version of Shakespeare, because once I discovered that the soliloquies in Shakespeare were not these interior monologues of, you know, thinking about all your feelings, but in fact, was a dialogue with the audience. I, it blew my mind. So I've been breaking the fourth wall, you know, for the last 40 years. And I find it extremely exciting. You can get to people of all ages that way. So when, you know, when the really rough kids from the neighborhood come to see, say, having our say with two old, and then they say, what do you want? You know, how, how I can't believe two, you know, people want to hear about what two old Negro ladies have to say. And the, the kids are there, the pics are in the hair, and they're like coming in, oh, this doesn't mean anything to me. And then all of a sudden they're weeping because it's like they've just had a long, hot meal with their, with their grandmothers. They learned American history. It's kind of, a cool experience. And I think the same thing happens with this play. So, all right, Shakespeare. And then I think August Wilson is the greatest American playwright. There are 10 genius works, not to say Edward Albee and and, and Miller and O'Neill are not, shouldn't be in the lexicon. They should. They're also brilliant, but they had two, three, and four great plays and August had 10. There's just no getting around that. And he was a dear friend of mine and he deeply affected me as a writer. I also grew up listening to music from the Motor City. And so I would say, you know, Marvin Gaye is <laughs> a big influence for me. I've fallen in love hearing Marvin Gaye's work and everything from his incredible melodies to his political stuff, you know, really draws me. And then, you know, it's Mozart and Chopin Beethoven, I, I, I'm still a classic music, classical music freak. And in terms of the visuals of theater, I was very lucky to have been adopted by Ming Cho Lee, who was one of the great, great American set designers. And he inspired me. And then, of course, the great Tennessee Williams, whom I knew very well and who was a great supporter of mine. And I'm about to do another play of his in New York starting a week after we closed the pianist. So there's a list. I could go on and on. I'm boring myself though. So I'm going to stop. That's an amazing list though. That's incredible. <laughs> and we've now arrived at my favorite question to ask guests. And that is, what is your favorite theater memory? Well, the first time I was a kid and I came to New York and I saw a Broadway show, obviously one of the, like I saw Rent and I was like, <laughs> And I was like, wow. And that stuck oh. with me forever. You know, Daphne Rubin Vega, who was in the original Rent, is going to be in Night of the Iguana. I'm oh, wow. Be- Incredible. Yeah. 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 And I'm Austin. And Austin. And Austin. That's right. I think that's for sure. And then 
I think one of my favorite plays to have seen was The Marriage of Maria Brown, oh. uh, which is an incredible Fassbender film. It's done in Berlin at the Schaubühne and post-war German stories. I found them always very fascinating, especially particularly the relationships between American GIs and German women who lost their husbands in the war. And The Marriage of Maria Brown is one of those harrowing crazy stories and I think seeing that in Berlin at the Schaubühne really deeply affected me in terms of how how actors can transform from one role to the next without leaving the stage how rules don't have to apply how everything is open to imagination and how if you want to have rules in life you can have them but if you decide that rules don't apply to you which very much resonates to me as a human being you can create your own so yeah, these two, I think. Mm-hmm. Love those. Those are fabulous. Wonderful memories. Emily, how about you? Well, I'll, I'll go with Daniel. And the first memory of being in a, seeing a play was our Sunday school class, Jewish Sunday school class, went to Second Avenue to see the Yiddish theater. And I was seven years old and we put on the headphones. It was all in Yiddish. It was when the Yiddish theater still existed on Second Avenue. And sat in the theater and heard the Dybbuk. And this amazing actress with, I remember this thick black braid coming down to, you know, below her hips. And she was in her wedding dress. And all of a sudden out comes the voice of the Dybbuk in a man's voice. And I screamed almost stopped the production, I'm ashamed to say. And everyone was going, shh, shh, shh. And I was just, I couldn't breathe. And I thought, oh my God, oh my God, how how did that happen? I, I felt as if my whole body was, you know, a, a, a nerve ending. So that was my first experience of the live theater. And I tried to make as good an experience as I possibly can for other children coming to my plays. And then I, I guess, along with, with Daniel, I mean, the first play I saw on Broadway was Fiorello. My father had written the biography of Fiorello H. LaGuardia. And so we were allowed to go backstage. Little did I know that I'd spend most of my life living on stage and backstage. But there I was at the age of 10. And then I think the next great one was seeing Trevor Nunn's production of Antony and Cleopatra in London with his wife and I I thought someday I will know how to do that direct that so and then finally I did so yeah I don't know then there are 25,000 others but yeah those are three big ones that is amazing though the the, both of those those are incredible thank you so much for sharing those with us pleasure are there any other projects or productions that either of you have coming on the pipeline that we might be able to plug for you? Mm-hmm. Yes, I'll go first because mine is a shorter list than Daniel's. I hope you all will come to the Signature Theater on 42nd Street in New York to see um, directing Night of the Iguana by Tennessee Williams with a phenomenal cast, including the great Austin Pendleton, who is on stage in The Pianist right now, and Tim Daly, and Daphne Rubin-Vega, and Leah Delaria. It's going to be 
quite a kick. And I hope you all will come. It opens on December 17th in New York. Very excited about that. Very excited about that. Thank you. Well, I very much hope uh, if people are interested in material of uh, historical uh, periods, I was um, part of a great production that is streaming on Disney Plus called A Small Light, which is all about Meep Geese, who was hiding the Franks. Otto Frank is played by Leif Schreiber, Meep Geese by Bill Powley, and I am playing a pretty contrasting role to Vladislav Spielmann. I was playing... Silberbauer, Karl Josef Silberbauer, who was the SS officer responsible for the death of the Franks, which is the very opposite of Vladislav Spielmann. But it is a brilliantly crafted, beautifully done production from the perspective of a young woman, neither Jewish nor German, who decided that it's her moral responsibility to save the humans that she loves, regardless of the fact if they're Jewish or not. And it's a beautiful multi-dimensional perspective into what it takes to stand up to hate. Mm. Uh, I'd love for people uh, to see that. And sadly, because I'm filming my next couple of projects, I'm never allowed to say what it is before it's out. So sadly, I can't pluck it, but there's going to be cool things coming. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is a great lead into my final question then, which is if our listeners would like more information about The Pianist, or about either of you, perhaps they'd like to reach out to you, say on top of all your many projects, how can they do so? Well, first of all, they should come to George Street Playhouse to see the pianist in New Brunswick, playing till October 22nd. Tickets at georgestreetplayhouse.org. I'm plugging it. But other than that, we, well, the play as well as the theater have both social media accounts. And we're going to set up a social media account for Emily. We said we're going to give you an Instagram. We talked about it. So hopefully soon you'll be able to reach out to Emily via Instagram. But uh, yeah, you can reach me on Instagram. It's just Daniel Donsquay. Wonderful. Well, Emily, Daniel, thank you both so much for taking the time to speak with me today for sharing this incredible show with a wonderful message and all of your insight this has been lovely so thank you for your time today i really appreciate it thank you we appreciate it thank you andrew my guests today have been the playwright and director emily mann and the actor daniel donskoy who are part of george street playhouse's presentation of the pianist It's playing now through October 22nd at the George Street Playhouse, and you can get your tickets and more information by visiting georgestreetplayhouse.org. We also have some contact information for the show and for our guests, which we will be listing in our episode description as well as on our social media post. But right now, get your tickets to this very powerful show at the George Street Playhouse by visiting georgestreetplayhouse.org check out the pianist playing now through October 22nd. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez reminding you to turn off your cell phones, unwrap your candies, and keep going to the theater. In stage whisper. Thank you.
If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Maniac by Jazzar. Other music on this episode provided by Jazzar and Billy Murray. You can also become a patron of our show by logging on to patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. There you will find all the information about our backstage pass as well as our tip jar. Thank you so much for your generosity. We could not do this show without you.